Hey guys, just a real quick note on today's podcast. Uh, this podcast was recorded Thursday evening right before the game against the Orlando Magic. I only bring this up because we will make references to quote-unquote last night's game, uh, to which we are referring to the Grizzlies game. And then we'll make other random notes like, you know, team records and how many games are left. So just understand that the blowout win over the Orlando, Mag- Orlando Magic occurred after this podcast was recorded. All right, thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek. I'm joined by Rich on the Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. It's, it's been a couple of weeks. We considered doing one last week, had some travel to deal with, but we have to talk about your fourth place, Philadelphia 76ers. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. There was a lot of those tweets last night. The, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers are now in fourth place tweets that are just going to get a ton of engagement because people are so happy with their basketball it's, team right it, now. It just Forget about home court advantage for a second, and make no mistake, the decisive game at your home floor would be huge for a team that's lost one game in the building since December 21st. But there's a there's a psychological aspect to being a top-four seed as well. Like these are, te- these are the teams in the bottom half that squeaked in the playoffs, and these are the teams that are legitimate. Uh, and it's it's not rational. We're likely talking about a win or two at most between the fourth seed and the seventh seed. But I do think it creeps into players' minds as well. Yeah, there's something about the jump between fourth and fifth. I, I've heard even NBA executives, you know, they talk in terms of we want to be a top four seed or being a top four seed, we're, we're in play. It's sort of like who wants to be a millionaire when you go from 32000 to 64000 or, or whatever, like when you're safe to get the money. Yeah, there's something it, – it's even more than the home game. It's a, it's a, There's a status that uh, a team has with being a top four seed. And the Sixers, as of now, are there. And, you know, as we'll get into, uh, they have a pretty good chance of staying there. Yeah, no doubt. And look, there is clearly, I mean, this is a team that's lost one game at, at, at the Wells Fargo Center since December 21st. So there's clearly something about getting that decisive seventh game at home, too. But yeah, there's, there's like I said, there's almost like an air of legitimacy when you're a top four seed compared to a little farther down that may not make perfect rational sense, but it's absolutely there. All right. So we have a couple things. You know, obviously a lot's happened since we last did one of these podcasts, but to kind of break it up, Obviously, I have last night's win, uh, now winning four in a row and five out of six. Embiid and his comments on rest, whether or not he'll get any throughout the season. General thoughts on who you would want them to play, as Brett says, if they're lucky enough to make the playoffs, which, <laughs> you know, I think the magic number at this point is three with 12 games left. So, yeah, you're making the playoffs. He, he pissed me off last night. He a said it days again. Ago. He brought it back up, yep. On Monday, he got off of it and he said, "All right, you know, we're we're moving on to a new uh, sort of a new goal, new challenge, trying to get a top four seed." And then last night, he does the, "Oh, if we're lucky enough to get in the playoffs, <laughs> yeah. hey man, it's impossible for you to not make the playoffs." It's ugh. yeah, they are. Let's see, hold on, I got the standings right here. They are uh, eight and a half up on the. Ninth-seeded Detroit Pistons with 12 games left. It would take it would take a New York Mets-level collapse to not make it at this point. 
Um, oh, Gene Mock couldn't blow that lead. <laughs> yeah. All right, so where do you want to start of that group? I guess probably just last night's game. It's the most recent. Yeah. So I, I thought we we uh, I think you had a good line in your uh, in your uh, recap today, and it was based off our conversations last night. It was so weird how that game felt like all of the March contests that we've witnessed over the past couple of years. It's sparse crowd that's not really into the game, although that had to do with the weather. And to be fair, the some of the people who were there were having, you know, they, they were pretty loud, some weird chants. Like, there was a lot of fun had last night, a lot of fun. Some full skull chants going on. Uh, but the one major exception was that, you know, in past years there was obviously one functional NBA team on the floor and it was the team that was playing the Sixers. The big difference is last night it was the Sixers. Yeah. And man did the Grizzlies suck. Yeah, they um I don't know what they're good at and that's not that's not a shocker. They lost what 21 out of 22 games now. Um that team has absolutely no identity which a tanking team probably shouldn't. Like if if you're doing that well then you you, you almost by definition don't have a have an identity. They were a team. I mean, I know the Sixers. Yeah, I know, I know the Sixers lost to them earlier in the season. If they would have lost that game last night, everybody would have freaked out. That team was a dreadful team. They were not a competent basketball team. They there was no. They had no business being with the Sixers. Like if that, they made a second quarter run and got it to I think six. And at that point, there was no part of me that believed that game was actually in that. Like, there was 100%. It's like when the Sixers would challenge Golden State a couple of years ago. 100% confidence the Sixers were losing that game. There was 100% confidence in me that the Sixers were going to find a way to blow that lead back up to double digits and do it real quickly. And in the, and I think they they increased the lead to like 14 in a matter of like a minute and a half to end, this, end the, the first half. And then the third quarter came out, and I remember – they were, they were up about 15. I said to you, look, if this thing gets to the 20, you take and beat out. You don't put them back in until it's back to like 12 or so. And they blew that lead. They ran that lead from 14 to 25 in the blink of an eye. And that game was done. That game was done. Wayne Sheldon yeah. wasn't bringing them back. That would have been a borderline UMBC level upset yeah. yep. if the Grizzlies would have won that game. And I know, you know the line is everybody's an NBA team. They're not really an NBA team, and it, it it's just it was weird to be on the other side where you really couldn't take too much from the Sixers' standpoint. It's all right they they basically executed at half speed and got whatever the hell shot they wanted. And God, the Grizzlies just bricked so many terrible jumpers, and you know they they did what they had to do. But it it was just weird. I don't think I've ever been. You know, I don't think I've ever watched a Sixers game where the Sixers are on the other end of that. They've blown teams out before. I specifically remember a game on St. Paddy's Day last year where they beat the Mavericks by about a hundred. But that that Sixers team, they were you know they they were a lottery team still. This was a playoff team just sort of going through the motions and taking care of business and blowing a team out. It, it was different to see. I mean, it, it they really just you, you couldn't really take anything. And after the game, I. The questions for Embiid were all about uh, Brett's comments before the game about resting him because I mean, what the hell are you going to talk about for the right. game? How was uh, you know, how was that four for ten performance for, from you? He's like, hey, well, I played twenty minutes. It was awesome. <laughs> right, and that that really was the key statistic for me. It was Brett was uh, Joel played under twenty minutes. Some of the other ones, I mean, 
Memphis shot, I remember looking this up, 36% on uncontested shots. And sometimes that can be misleading. Like a lot of times an uncontested shot is a farther shot from the basket. Like threes tend to be uncontested, whereas, you know, a shot at the rim tends to be contested. So you look at it and you're like, oh, man, how do they make 55% of their contested looks? That's because a lot of those contested looks are at the basket. But that was a game where the Sixers just, you could give them a 15-footer, a 20-footer, which Memphis was more than happy to take a, 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 an open 20-footer or a three-pointer. That shot wasn't going in, Rich. That shot was not going in. They did not have the personnel to convert an open look almost regardless of where it was on the floor. And the Sixers had a real easy, you know, th- that was a real easy cover last night. Real easy. I don't want to say cover because they actually, they covered the point spread on a last second bullshit three, which is, you know, reason number 5,064 why you don't bet on sports. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was a game that was 25-30 for most of the night. A late run and bullshit time and a, a, a three at the buzzer, and, and next thing you know, you're not even covering the spread. But it was uh, it, they, they could have won that game by 50 if they wanted easily. Yeah, I didn't watch Sports Center last night, but that definitely should have ended up on bad beats. They, uh, yeah, there just really wasn't a lot to talk about. They, uh, it, it was cool though. The crowd, uh, the Sixers giving out free hot dogs to everybody, which included us, yep. which was which was big. Uh, as we said, not the not the best dog I've ever tasted, but free food is free food, so good on the Sixers for doing that. I also think they brought uh, or they bought pretzels and beer for uh, all the fans on the rights to Ricky Sanchez trip in Milwaukee. So again, good on them for doing that. Um, but yeah, besides that, I, there's, there's not really too much. The, and, and you know, when you look at the Sixers' schedule coming up, which is why you know you look at 5:38 where they are projected. To finish with forty nine wins, forty nine wins. That would be what nine and three. Yeah, forty nine wins, and it's because the schedule's so bad. It's because the Grizzlies. While I'm not sure we're going to get a team quite as dreadful as the Grizzlies, there are going to be a few teams that come to the Wells Fargo Center where the Sixers. You know, it's it's pretty much the the thing we always talk about with Colangelo drafting Ben Simmons. The Sixers, all they got to do is sign their name on the SAT for those games and just show up because. I mean, it, these teams are not are just not trying to win, and they're not very talented. Yeah, and that's why we always said, you know, Brett Brown would always say, oh, you, you can't talk about how easy the schedule is. Don't fall for that trap. That's how the team and the players have to look at it. I get that. But you and I can take a step back and say these are, are, are dog shit teams. They can play their C game against the Knicks and the Nets, still pull out a win. They can just show up, take the floor, and they're going to beat the Grizzlies. And next thing you know, you're on a, a four-game losing streak. You're not even really playing your best ball of the season. And you're sitting here at 40 and 30 with 12 games left. Rich, is 50 wins actually in play? Can they go 10 and 2? I know I know. 538 said, you know, project the 9 and 3. Can they go 10 and 2? That sounds insane. It is still probably insane. It's very hard to go 10 and 2, adding the four-game winning streak, and you're at, you know, 14 and 2 run. It's very hard to end a season like that, even against dog shit competition. But they really do have a lot of winnable games. Yeah, I wouldn't bet on it just because I, I think there's a chance they might have 49 in the last on the last game of the year and just sit all their guys. There, there's you know that that could happen. But that again, that's another status thing, man. The difference between 49 and 50 is a big deal for some reason. Just that nice round number. You know, 50 you, you get considered to be at least the, somewhat of an elite team. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's they basically I mean, look, man, have. They got, Brooklyn at home, yep. Dallas at home, uh, the Knicks at home. I mean, at Atlanta, at Detroit, who's going to be done by then? At Orlando tonight. 
it's you know it's like Brett always does say you can't look at the standings and and just expect to win and that might be true earlier in the year because again the Sixers it's well documented some of those losses in December were terrible but the difference between tanking teams in December and and March is kind of a big deal <laughs> right uh, so looking at the schedule they have four marginally tough games. They've got the the Timberwolves coming up on Saturday. Um, They have the Nuggets, who've been struggling a little bit, have kind of fallen out of the playoff picture in the West, but are still a a, a competent, good team. They have, uh, let's see, who else? The Pistons, who have just completely fallen off the face of the earth since the the Dwight, or not, since the Brook trade. And then you have, what did I say, Brook? Jesus Christ. Yeah, since the the Blake trade. (laughs) <laughs> then you have I can't speak at all right now. Uh, and then you have the Bucks on the final game of the season, which who knows what to expect on that game. So you win two out of those four quote unquote tough games, and you've put yourself in a spot where fifty is not impossible. But like you, would I bet on it? No, probably not. But it, it is certainly in a there is a, a a a scenario in which that could play out. Yeah. Yep. Uh. And then, I mean, you know, it's, again, in our analysis of the game, when you look back to the other night when they uh, made quick work of the Hornets, despite the fact that Embiid turned the ball over a bunch of times, we kind of focus on something that, does it matter all that much? No, but there's nothing really else to talk about right now. The Sixers are just better than a lot of these teams. And... uh I thought you wrote your piece was really good at at theathletic.com by the way which you should all go ahead and subscribe to if you haven't I would assume a lot of you have um that that basically Embiid is the stabilizing factor on the turnovers. Yeah, and I don't I don't want to get too deep into this because I looked at a lot of lineups, I looked at a lot of player combinations and you know there's a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics involved in that. And sometimes that plays better in written form than it does on podcast. So go go over to theathletic.com slash Philly. Check it out. Give it a read. But the TLDR of it is kind of, I think I went into that maybe thinking that was, you know, a correlation where maybe Embiid was playing with the best combination of shot creators and shooters. And that group turned it over less frequently. But when you started going to the bench, that's when the turnovers were introduced. And Embiid almost, he, he was on the, the team did better taking care of the ball almost by proxy. I think what I found by looking at, you know, I started off looking at the starting lineup of Simmons, Reddick, Covington, Sharch, looking at it with Embiid and with any other center. I looked at, you know, Simmons with other players, Simmons with Embiid, without Embiid. And what I found that I think Embiid just kind of kept everyone, you know, right there in their roles, right what they were good at doing. And when he took Embiid off the court and the defense was able to then key on these other role players, even Simmons who struggles at times in the half court, that's when the turnovers really spiked because players try to do more than they should. I don't read that as Embiid's turnovers aren't an issue because I think there's clearly individual improvement from Embiid that that's right there for him. He's still not consistent at all handling oh, no. double teams. Nope. It's and it's frustrating because sometimes he'll make the perfect read and see it quickly and throw a bullet, but then God, there are other times where he just dribbles out and he ends up sort of falling near the sideline. That's just. You can't have that in the playoffs, and I do think teams are going to double the shit out of him in the playoffs. Oh, yeah, for sure. And he can get better in reading those double teams. He can get better on, on learning when to attack off the dribble. You know, I made a tweet 
way early in the season that Embiid should be limited to two dribbles, and by and large, I still generally feel that way. Nothing good ever happens after that third dribble. And there's just so many paths that you can see where he can improve this, you know, real one flaw that he has in his game on either side of the court, which is, again, ridiculous to say and, and sounds crazy when I say it, but that's like, that's like his one real flaw, and you can see that being improved, and that would help the team greatly. And so I don't want to say that Embiid's turnovers aren't an issue. What I will say is that I think if they can get another second high-level shot creator and high-level half-court scorer, then it's going to make, first of all, it's going to make Embiid's life easier. He's not going to have to create as much of his offense one-on-one. He's going to get some scoring opportunities spoon-fed to him. But also they're going to be able to withstand when he's on the bench a little bit better. Because right now Ben Simmons, for as great as he is, and he, I mean, he's been playing fantastic. He's been playing better than any have expected. And he had that that stretch where he had two triple-doubles in a row, three out of four games. He's now up to, I think, nine on the season, which we can get into. Uh, Triple-doubles, I do think, are an overrated stat. Not that the skills to get them are overrated. Like, I think having a diverse game is great and is valuable, and I think people will underrate those skills respective to scoring. But I think, you know, it's it's always a case of, well, is a 10-point, 11-rebound, 12-assist game better than a... 30.6 rebound, 7 assist game? No, it's not. Like, And the, the cutoff makes people overrate that stat. But for all of Simmons' talents, getting back to where I was at, scoring in the half court is not one of them. And it's still an area where he struggles. It's still an area where, especially when you take somebody of Embiid's talents and Embiid's gravity off the court, and a, t- and a, a defense has to gear up to stop him, they can't stop him in the half court. A guy like Markel Fultz, or a guy like LeBron James or Paul George in, in, in free agency, you add that to this team, and I think a lot of these problems go away. Yeah, and I mean, you you did the the numbers on this. The the Sixers have been playing better recently with Embiid off the court and, and Simmons sort of running the ship, but part of that might just be that J.J. Redick and Dario Sarge can't miss right now and that's that's obviously a huge deal yeah i mean it, it just goes to show though you know the other night Embiid, he looked he looked like jake delome crapping his pants <laughs> in the playoffs like he's he's turning the ball over he's tossing it three rows into the stands and he finishes with i, I think it was nine total and, and, but then as you find out i mean we always talk about the just the, the presence that he has on the defensive end of the court on how um him just being there and protecting the rim and and rebounding and he's been rebounding like crazy. He's putting up Dallin Bear type numbers uh, <laughs> <laughs> recently. Uh, but for this team, you know that his presence offensively, while it's not you know as transferable on a lot of good teams, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. With a lack of shot creators, he does help mitigate some of the concerns there, and. As a result, the Sixers have, I think they're 13th in offensive efficiency, which, I mean, I I did not expect that at the beginning of the year. No. No, I recently went back and looked at my uh, preseason predictions column. I had them at 22nd offensively. Uh, so to be at 13th is a huge, like, that's not even the same stratosphere as my prediction. And turnovers are the only thing really, I think, in terms of effective field goal percentage, I think they're, the shots they're getting rank about 8th. So they're getting really good looks for a team that really only has one legitimate half-court creator, which is 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 pretty incredible. But you remove Embiid from the equation, and everything those guys look to do just becomes a little bit more harder. Like every shot J.J. Redick takes, they're, they're a step closer to con- contesting. Same thing with Dario Sharch. Ben Simmons, you know, he, he's going to get 
defended differently when there's not a big man, a 7-2, 270-pound big man that's occupying the defense's attention down low. It's it's really evident. It really is an area they can continue to improve upon as Embiid gets better, as their roster gets better. Again, I don't want to... I, phrase, no, I don't but, want to frame this in the wrong way. Pl- turnovers still very well could determine whether or not they went around the playoffs. Like, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. Don't read this as me saying it's not a huge concern. Yeah, I mean, right now it's crippling them. And, I mean, you know, when, when Embiid is posting up, when he's on the uh, the Malone line, as I wrote about this week, uh, on The Athletic, and the Sixers are able to space it, the turnovers have gone down. I mean, when you look at... The turnover numbers, it's they're at 16.7% is their turn, turnover percentage. Nobody's within a full percentage point of them. So they so basically they're last by a mile. So I, I think long term, I mean right now, it's it's a little scary. And I mean part of it is the lack of a secondary shot creator and Simmons' problem scoring in the half court. And Embiid needs to get better with double teams. So right now it's a problem. But, you know, as you said, I think they're eighth in effective field goal percentage. Part of that is they're working to get better shots than other teams, so that they're going to turn it over a lot anyway. And, I mean, th- this is going to be a thing where long-term I'm not as worried about it because I do think they'll improve a little bit, and the difference between being just below average and the worst team by a mile, that's going to make a huge difference, right. I think, long-term. I mean, so. the the Warriors have always been a below-average turnover team. I think they're, they're, they're second-worst in the league, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're essentially 29th. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's if they have the talent where they can score. And look, I think this is a team, like we said, they're getting eight best shots in the league, which is, again, absurd to me. You add another high-level talent, whether that's through Fultz's development or whether that's through free agency or trade, you get Ben Simmons two or three or four years of development skill-wise and physical development. You get Embiid to where he's recognizing double teams. I think that turnover number becomes more competitive, and I think those shots get better. And I do think this is a team that has a lot of lot of upside in their offensive potential, which, uh, considering you have that monster anchoring your defense, puts you in a really good spot. Yep. So let's talk about that monster and how many games he's played this year so far. It's insane how much he's played. <laughs> he has played 59 games with... 13 games to go, so or 12 games to go, sorry. So I, I guess he'd be at 71 if yep. he continued to play the rest of the year at 31 minutes per game. Yeah. That's insane. It's batshit crazy. It was – I again, I went back and looked at my preseason predictions, which I had him at 42 wins, which I'm glad I did. It was a late bump up. I was talking 40 for most of the offseason. I bumped him up too because I was a little more optimistic about Embiid's health. But I had Embiid at 57 games played. 57. He's already played 59. He's already exceeded that total. There's just, there was no world I saw. Like, you looked at it, 17 back-to-back, strike those from the books. He's not playing those. Now you're all, all already down to 65 games. You figure there'd be one situation, maybe a, you know, what he, he hurt his thumb earlier in the season. There'd be one of those kind of situations. He'd miss a couple games, maybe some nagging injuries. I thought 57 games was a pretty optimistic view of where Embiid would finish. To be at 59 with 12 games left, and by the way, Embiid's saying he's playing every one of them. Although he he did leave some room for the last game of the season if it meant something. That was that was his version of getting rest. To talk about 71 games played for this guy with this injury history, and frankly, just with the way the game's played in 2018, 
It's mind-boggling to me. Yeah, I'm. I mean, we were joking last night. Should, should I be the uh, at the forefront of the other take that he's playing too much? That <laughs> I think he's he's even gone past what I thought or what I think moving forward should be the optimal amount of of, uh, of games played. It's just, I mean, it, it's crazy. And then, you know, Brett said last night he was asked before the game if they'll find him any rest. That was a big topic last week and the week before when Joe was struggling a little bit, although there was, you know, there was no real reason why, you know, he, was, he wasn't moving totally sluggishly out there. And Brett basically said, no, there's no no plan, at least initially, um, you know, maybe, or not against the Magic, but maybe they would like to get him a game down the stretch. And then Joel, after the game, basically said, I'm not sitting out. Maybe the last game, if it's, uh, if the seed's wrapped up, which, <laughs> you know, it also jives with what Brett said. He basically was like, it's not going to be without a fight, that decision. And I think that kind of gives you a decent picture of how things go behind the scenes and who is driving the bus there, so to speak. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. And he... You know, we talk about the good thing about this stretch, too, at the end of the year. Last night they were able to play him 20 minutes. So it's it's a much easier decision for them to say, all right, yeah, we'll play on the – you know, it's easy. Fine, go ahead, play on the back-to-back. You barely broke a sweat last night. Yeah, I mean, his response, like you said, Brett, I think sometime last week Brett said that they would – they were discussing how to handle the back-to-back. Last night, Brett, uh, and I guess obviously – we're saying last night. That means we're recording this, um, you know, Thursday afternoon before they play the Magic. But last night, Brett was like, oh, yeah, he's going to play both these games in the back, but we're going to still look to get him rest in one of these games coming up in the remaining 12 games, or remaining 11 games then if, if he's already talking back-to-back is in. So after the game, you know, we asked Joel about that, and his response was, oh, I'm, I'm playing in every game. Like, we didn't come this far to rest me is what he said. And it was pretty clear, like, it's not like I want to play in every game or I'm going to try to play in every game. He came flat out and said, I'm playing in every game. And if you needed any indication, who's, like you said, who's driving that decision, Joel Embiid and whether or not, you know, Joel Embiid is the biggest arbiter of how his body feels, and he's going to exert that influence if he can. And as long as there's not something physically preventing him from playing, don't expect him to sit until the games don't matter anymore. Yeah. Which, by the way, I I disagree with. Like, at some point, I think you have to step in and prevent players from making a mistake. You have to step in and say, look, I know you want to do this. We really appreciate that you want to do this. But it, this isn't 100% your call. If you, You've got to prevent them from making a mistake. Um, and I understand with, with star players that would be difficult. But with how condensed the schedule is, how many minutes he's played, how many minutes he's played in the rest of his career – like I, I like I said before, I think you make a case for getting a, a day or a game or two of rest might not only help you keep him healthy, might not only help you keep him ready for the playoffs, but it might help you win more games too just because of, you know, he can get into these stretches where he struggles a little bit. Maybe that, that stretch a couple of weeks ago spooked me a little bit and and got me a little nervous, but I do think there's a case just just a game. Just sit a game, get some rest. Maybe a, a, one of the rare trips that you have to make, one of the where you know, they play seven or 12 games at home. Maybe one of those games you just sit them at home and you say, get some rest, take it easy, we'll be back to, to Philly in a couple days. Who knows? I don't know. I would like for it to be up in the air. I understand this is a playoff run. He's a star player. Star players don't normally sit during playoff runs. 
But he is, I mean, he is still a different case than pretty much any other established star in the league. Yeah, I mean, he, he did make a good point last night that when he sits a few games, he gets out of shape pretty quickly. And that that is true. But it, I think there is a balancing act here. And they have enough games in a sort of condensed schedule here where a night off, yeah, I agree, would would not be a bad idea. And not the uh, not the last game against the Bucks either. And look, maybe at some point we have to take the quote unquote kid gloves off. Like it's been, he's no. played, he's put. He could be, he could be thirty eight <laughs> with, with 10, 10 titles. Nope, they're still on. But to his credit, he has played a year and a half with no flare up of or any indication of any foot problems. Like his, his there's been no indication of no. a knee problem this year. Not, not only that, he's punting balls <laughs> into the stands with his bare feet <laughs> right, after games. Right. He did it twice last night. He almost, the, the first punt was so bad that he almost hit the scoreboard with it. It basically went straight up and down. And then he punted it 30 rows deep, basically <laughs> into the club box seats. Uh, yeah, so. His, 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 but his biggest injury so far this year has been has been the hand, which still bothers him from time to time, which he'll still admit to. And the only other one, the only other. With the back. Other, yeah, because right. the hand, there's no rest that's going to fix the hand. Like, not, not, not a game or two of rest. We're talking off-season of rest. The back is the only one that you could point at and say maybe maybe there's some argument to be made that lower use could could help play that. But again, I don't think I don't think a game or two of rest is going to swing that one way or the other. But he is still Joel Embiid with that injury history, that lower body injury history, and that you know career where he just he's never played these many minutes. It is a little bit like a pitcher where you don't want you know seven hundred minutes one year. 2,000 minutes and next. Is, is that going to concern me? Yeah, it's going to concern me down the stretch, especially when when you're talking about, like you said, a condensed schedule um, heading into the playoffs. But they do, they will have at least have three days of rest between the last game of the regular season and the start of the playoffs. There, there is at least that. Thank, thank God he's not a pitcher. God. Uh, can you imagine Scott Borising him for the, <laughs> uh, for the playoffs? Oh, God. Also, right. could you imagine a 7-2 guy on the mound? That would be terrifying. That would be terrifying. He'd look like he's 10 feet on that mound. Ooh. Yep. That would be great, actually. Has he ever thrown out a first pitch in a game? I don't remember he, ever seeing him do that. I don't think he did. They usually do that for the uh, the guys who get drafted. They come to Philly. But yeah. obviously when he was drafted, he, uh, he was, he was in a cast. Yeah. So. I, w- I wonder if he can throw a baseball. That's always one where it doesn't matter how athletic you are and how, how athletically inclined, how many sports you've played. If you've never thrown a baseball, you're not throwing a baseball um Competently, it's it's it kills me every time. It kills me. I love it. Think you Bob Baba Booyat or uh, <laughs> who Mariah Carey? Who was the Sixer recently who 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 failed epically? Was that MCW? Evan Turner? One of their draft picks recently threw out a first pitch that was just awful. That was just awful. It might have been. Uh, I'm just naming high draft picks now. I don't remember. Anyway, it's hard. Uh, all right. Of the options, obviously they're not playing. Unless they really collapse, they're not playing the Raptors or the Celtics. The the Cavs could still there's you know all those teams in that three four five six seven eight mix that real bunched up together. Um, that a lot of those combinations then are in play. And you're talking about the Cavs with 29 losses, Sixers 30, and then you got the Pacers and the Wizards with 31, Heat 33 losses, and Bucks 34 losses. So realistically, any finish from three through six is in play. So you've got the Cavs, 
Pacers yeah. and Wizards as the realistic options of who they might play in the first round of playoffs. Yeah, it's only it's only two games between the, them and the seventh seed. But again, that schedule, I would just be really surprised yeah, if would, they drop. It would that. take a huge collapse. Of those teams, who are you looking for? So this is a good question, and it's something uh, I'm I'm looking at for a piece right now. So my answers could be different in writing, but I, I think when, when you look at that group, that three to seven, the three to seven teams who could end up in the three to six, uh, the big team you don't want to play is probably the one who's been the worst regular season team fundamentally. I mean, I know their record is better, but God, from a point differential standpoint, they're the worst and. Their defense is just hard. It's it's the Cavs, but the Cavs have LeBron James, and you know I I, I understand the argument that's, of that's amazing. By the way, I didn't even notice her point differential was that bad. But uh, it's outside it's gotten of, better recently too. It was like negative like a week ago. Outside of the Bucks, they'll have the worst point differential of any playoff team. Yeah, they they're really lucky to be the three seed right now. Um. But they have LeBron, and I'm looking at this in terms of, you know, I could understand the argument of, well, you should want to play them because playing against an elite team would give them the best experience going forward. It would be, if they play the Cavs, that'll be like ABC will will give that the 330 treatment. TNT will make that the main game, you know, whenever. They'll they'll give that the best treatment. I'm looking at it uh, through it as, what are the best chances of them making it to the second round of the playoffs? That's all I'm concerned about. And I'm sorry, that one's pretty easy to me. You don't want to play LeBron in the playoffs. That's just point blank. That's easy. So of them, they would be the team I would least want to play. Then, to me, I think the the next team I wouldn't want to play is is also pretty simple, too. That would be Washington. And, you know, obviously John Wall, there's still some uncertainty there. But that is a team that has won around multiple times. And the, the Sixers have sort of, you know, Brett said it a couple, uh, a couple uh, last week when they play, uh, played against the Pacers. They've kind of just traded wins against all the rest of these teams. You know, they've, they've basically took, they've taken care of business at home for the most part and lost on the road. The, the Wizards are a team, I just, Beal and Wall, that, that scares me. And then I, I would say of the other two, I would put them in a tier, I, Indiana or Miami. I guess I'd want to play Indiana more than them, but those would be the two teams that you would prefer to see in the first round, in my opinion. Which is funny, because I don't think Miami's that great of a team. Like, we've we've talked before about how they're overrated, but they do seem like they give the Sixers problems. They play such a physical style of defense that they've given Embiid problems, they've given the Sixers shooters problems. Some of those games have just been ugly, and I think they're 2-2 and against the Heat, but I feel like both of those losses came towards the end. I think the last two games they played them, they lost. So maybe it's just a little bit of recency creeping in on me. But some of those games were ugly. They're a weird team. I don't think they're a great team, but they might be a bad bad matchup for the Sixers. Um, but then again, you also get to the point where it's a half-court, more of a half-court game in the playoffs. You figure Miami's going to struggle to score against the Sixers. But anyway, I it's, do agree with – go ahead. Man, it's hard. Like, I have no idea what the Sixers are going to look like in the playoffs. No idea. Is It's fun, it, isn't it? It's a little bit fun. I, I have no, it's awesome, yeah. But like I, you know, the, as they Brett says all the time, the playoffs are a different sport, and that's true. I just like Ben Simmons. I have no idea what that's going to look like in the playoffs. Nope. Is our teams just going to go under? I mean, they're definitely going to go under every screen. But 
is he going to be a guy that that just gets his points in such a unique way and when he's going in basically such an unstoppable way that teams are going to struggle with him or are the weaknesses going to be so pronounced that that they're going to be a lot worse? Same thing with Joe and the turnovers. I have no idea what they're going to look like. I, I have pretty good confidence that they're going to defend well, you know, right. and especially once they get locked in and understand the scouting report. But, like, for the offensive end of the floor, I have no idea what this is going to look like. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's really so true. And, I mean, there's so many. Like, I still feel like the starting lineup is going to find a way to have success. Like, I have confidence in that group. I, the the, the skill sets just fit so perfectly with the way Dario's turned into just this elite shooter and a, and a secondary pa- playmaker and a passer. The way that Simmons has that kind of space that he needs and Embiid can be your first option and can quote-unquote quarterback the gym, another phrase that Brett loves, at times. like it, Those are all just set up where they can work off of each other very well. But once you start going to some of these bench units, uh, once you even start figuring out what Brett Brown's bench is going to be, because right now he's playing, you know, a solid nine guys or so, is sometimes even ten in in TJ and Marco Bellinelli and Ursan and Amir, and now Justin Anderson's been brought back into the mix a little bit. He's really limited the amount of time that TJ and Ben have been on the floor, which has opened some up some minutes, as he said last night. I don't know what their rotation is going to look like. I don't know what you can count on. You know, a guy like Justin Anderson in the playoffs. I don't know what you can count on TJ right now, who's in a, a, a really bad slump and has really struggled since, uh, you know, really since getting that triple-double against the Knicks, but for quite some time now. It is going to be interesting. It's going to be fascinating to watch how other teams game plan, how a coach who has seven games prepare for and adjust to what Ben Simmons is doing and take away his strengths. It's going to be fascinating to watch how that happens. But going back to the, the kind of the question, I do agree with you, avoid the Cavs. Not really as a person covering the team, because I think that would be the best storyline by far. Like that would be fun, yeah. The attention that would be on the team nationally would be fun. The storylines that you would have both on and off the court would be fun. The matchup in terms of winning would be a little tougher. Um, again, it's entirely based on LeBron. It's not based on any of the new teammates that he has, a team that right now is just not defending at a high level at all, really hasn't for most of the season. But I think LeBron's going to find a way. And I also agree with you that the second team I want to avoid is Washington. And they're another high-volatility team. They're, they're, they could go in a number of different ways when John Wall comes back. But they're a team that's really treaded water without him. And you're getting him back. And a team, like you said, that has had some success in the playoffs. A team that there are some enough shooters where the Sixers would have some difficulty matching up with them on the perimeter. Um, because, you know, you've got, obviously, I think what? I think Ben typically checks, uh, checks wall when they play. And yeah, he, and I, I think he could guard him pretty well in a playoff series, too, especially as the series goes along. Because, I mean, we, again, we have no idea what wall's going to look like when he gets back. And he is, he's, str- like, last year in that Celtic series, he struggled in the half court. Yep. No, he did. But then you have Covington on probably Beal. Actually, not Beal. It would probably be be Porter because of the height differential and then you've got to deal with uh you've got to deal with Reddick trying to cover Beal and that's uh that's that's the one that probably scares me the most of those matchups uh that's where you you would love to have another guy a more natural guard defender um or more natural point guard defender and a guy like uh guy like Fultz Fultzy if you're a, a hockey player 
Uh, so you can have a little more typical defensive rotations, but um, they're gonna. Have, that's a tough one to make work. Again, they're a high volatility team. John Wall could come back. He could struggle. He could struggle in the half court. He could use more possessions than maybe he should coming back from the layoff that he'd have. So maybe you can talk me into it there. But from a talent perspective, from a matchup perspective, that would be a tough one. But they have a shot. Really, any team. I'm not even gonna say they wouldn't have a shot against the Cavs. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put them as the favorites. I wouldn't say they have a great shot. I would still f- expect that LeBron would find a way. But when you talk about any of these other teams, the Pacers, um, the Wizards, the Heat, they have a real legitimate shot. And not yeah. just like a puncher's chance shot, but like a real legitimate shot, which is, I feel like I'm going to say this a lot over the next few few weeks, but what a world, man. What a world. They won 10 games two years ago, Rich. 10 games. Yeah, and I mean, I think when you're looking at these other teams, and obviously everybody's looking at the standings right now, those teams don't want to play the Sixers. The Cavs do not want to play the Sixers. Not not to say that they're, you know, LeBron isn't afraid of anybody, and I think the Cleveland has a sense that they're going to win against all of these teams. But I'm sure they're like, man, the Sixers are going to make us work harder than these other teams would. Uh, maybe Washington from from their perspective. But yeah, the way I would rank it is, Against Cleveland, like that's that's ninety to one hundred percent Cleveland would win. Against Washington, I would say Washington would be favored, but that would be like you 60, know, close, 40, 55, yeah, forty five, yeah, yeah, close to fifty fifty though. And then against these other teams, I think I would favor them. I'd probably pick them against Indy or Miami. So you what? know, it's it's crazy. What a fucking world! All right, uh, let's move on to a couple mailbag questions because we have a. A little bit of leftover time on this podcast, and one of them was pretty related to what we were just talking about. Um, what more must Brett Brown achieve to at least be considered a Coach of the Year candidate? Uh oh, the the biggest hot button issue, uh, along with Covington. Uh, it's uh, the other night I made the joke on Twitter. Uh, the Thunder collapsed in Boston. And I said that game was 10 out of 10 fire Brett Browns um, <laughs> because it was just a bad collapse. Look, I, I think Brett is doing a really good job. And if they win 50 games, that's pretty good. Now, I, I you know, are, are they exceeding our expectations? Yes, a little bit. But, again, that's tied to Joel's health, which he's gotten fortunate with this year. And and that that is how you, you're going to get close to 50 wins. Um, I He's certainly – not I, I'm not sure he would be a coach of the year. I who would you say are the front runners in that category? Maybe maybe Stevens, uh, maybe yeah. Dwayne D'Antoni, uh, you know, just just all the guys towards the top of the list. Uh, and Casey, I, Casey would be a third guy I'd throw in there. Yeah, for sure, because they've changed their style and have had an awesome year. It's you know, coach of the year is, is a tough one because like. Shit, I'd still give it to Pop. <laughs> like I, I just, I think he's the best coach. I mean, uh, he's the best coach every year. Yeah, it, it really is a Greg Popovich award, and for them to be at forty-two and thirty, with what eight or nine games of of Kawhi, is borderline mind-boggling. I mean, they're second. They're, they're the second. Marcus Aldridge, thirty-three point four minutes per game. Who do you think second on their teams in minutes played? On the Spurs, yeah, Danny Green. Patty Mills. Oh wow! Third is Kyle Anderson on a forty-two and thirty win Spurs. Yeah. Nobody's gonna so, nobody's gonna gonna give Pop the award 
because they came into the season with high expectations. But they came into the season with high expectations because of Kawhi Leonard and because they still have, you know, experience in Aldridge and Tony Parker and Manu who are, you know, 20-minute-per-game role players at this point in their career. But for him to be winning like he is with Kyle Anderson and Patty Mills it's and Danny Green, who's fifth in minutes played, it's astounding. It's an incredible coaching job. They have one of the stranger controversies going on in sports right now, and they had a you know, a players only meeting to try to convince Kawhi Leonard to play, which is not something you see every day in sports. But they are achieving far drastically over I always look at it, you know, you've got you've got you've got the the award. Who's it gonna go to? It's probably gonna go to the coach with the best record. Or at least the coach with one of the two or three best records. It's gonna come from that group. Who should it go to? To me, I always define it as who's getting the most out of what they have. You know, I think Dwayne Casey is a real candidate for that. I don't think anybody saw them. What are they at? 53 wins, I think, right now. I think they're basically tied with the Golden State Warriors. Everybody starts, I I would throw in there. For sure. But everybody thought the Raptors should blow it up and that their run was over, and here they are with the best record in the Eastern Conference and, and basically step for step with the Golden State Warriors. But in terms of getting the most out of their, their talent, to me, I'd also throw in Pop. And I would I would also throw in Brett Brown. There aren't many coaches getting more with what they have than Brett Brown at 40 and 30 with the Sixers. So should he be in the mix? Yeah, he should get some consideration. Is he going to win it? No chance. No chance. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I think there's a lot of coaches doing a great job this year. But I do think he at least has to be – like, if you're sitting here and you have a vote for Coach of the Year, I think his name has to at least cross your mind. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know – when we talk about all these coaches doing a good job, it, it's sort of a a general belief I had that goes uh, counter to a lot of people I see on Twitter, smart people and just people who follow me. Um, I don't think coaching matters quite as much as um, we make it out to be. Maybe on a long-term basis in terms of stability and a system it matters, but like on a night-to-night basis, I'm not sure it matters quite as much as people think. Um, it has to do with your talent level. Like er- Eric Spolster, I think, is doing a fantastic job this year. His roster is not that good, though, which is why they sit at 7th in the East. That guy has proven to be a good coach for a long time. Like I think he's a better coach than Nate McMillan, but Nate McMillan has done a good job this year. Basically, I'll, I'll just put it this way in terms of Brett. He's not one of the worst coaches in the league. He's doing <laughs> – He's doing a he's doing a good job with this roster. If, if you want to just say he's um, he's doing what's expected of him, that's fine. I think he's going a little bit further than that, and he has laid the groundwork for this team over losing seasons, which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, in creating, I, I wouldn't just say like a culture. I'd say like a um, a playing style and. Uh, you know, sort of an unselfishness, a general thing that the Sixers have going. Um, Brett has done a really good job. He's definitely not going to win Coach of the Year. But, yes, like I I think the Sixers should be very happy with the job he's doing. Do you think, and this is this is selfishly speaking because I don't, uh, I, I'm sick of these conversations. Do you think we're past the fire Brett Brown every time they have a bad game? No. Reaction? No. <laughs> if they lose to the Nuggets or the Wolves, uh, over the weekend, we're gonna get a ton of this. I'm sorry, it's yeah, it's it's awful. There there are people who tell me on Twitter that I've never played basketball because I defend Brett Brown. <laughs> like they just they just randomly assume I've never picked up a basketball before because I have this take 
that I don't think he's a bad coach. It's, ugh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's I would love to get to the point. I think Mike calls it coaching bloodlust. <laughs> yeah, it's a it, it's very true. It happens in in many markets. It's not something that's uh, that exists only in Philadelphia, but it is very very frustrating. Um, and that's not to say some coaches. Don't do a bad job. I mean, God, I, I watched Eddie Jordan. I watched all of those. <laughs> that was bad. I watched Jason Kidd a lot this year. I would say he was doing a bad job, too. Ranting about Eddie Jordan is what got me my spot at Liberty Ballers. Like, no joke at all. And by the way, if I don't get that spot at Liberty Ballers, I'm probably not here. I probably don't have this career. Like, it was a legitimate break. And I got that because I went in on Eddie Jordan every chance I got. I'm not – and, like, I interviewed Eddie Jordan. I'd met Eddie Jordan. Like, there's a chance – that he could have explained away his reasoning and I would have bought it, never going to happen. I, I swear to God, Rich, I not to get on an Eddie Jordan rant, but I'm certainly not against criticizing constantly, incessantly, if need be, a coach. Like, I did that with Eddie. I did that with Doug Collins. They can certainly make mistakes. This team right now is not held back by coaching, and I think it's pretty clear that they have gotten a lot out of what they have. But again, I don't think I don't think that means he's going to get any serious run for Coach of the Year. Um, no. There's a lot of good teams right now. There's a lot of good teams. Now, if he's here in a couple of years and they approach 60 wins, then he will be in that conversation. Yep. And by the way, coaching Coach of the Year is a little bit like a Lifetime Achievement Award, too. Your prior track record shouldn't matter. It's Coach of the Year. But it absolutely does matter in raising your profile and proving to other people that, you know, you're, you kind of have an impact on what's going on. So It's like, it's like Best Director at the Oscars. Sometimes... They just give that to the guy who hasn't won, who's made a lot of good right. movies. Absolutely, absolutely. And MVP sometimes, too, because voting for Michael Jordan every year gets boring. Yep. Uh, all right, so next question we have. Hold on, I, I, I lost the – where in the hell are – here we go. Uh, sorry, too many windows, too many tabs. Keeping it on, Brett, Brett Brown from William Wallace. Interesting name. Uh, talking contracts, what is Brett Brown's <laughs> contract status going forward, and would J.J. take the mid-level exception next year if the Sixers sign LeBron or Paul George? Uh, well, what, Brett is two more years after this, right? Or is it one more year? One more year, yep. One more year. Yep. So right. he signed a two-year extension. Two-year extension, that's when right. Jer- These weren't related. They were talking beforehand. Uh, discussions about the extension happened before Jerry Colangelo came. But it was announced pretty much right after Colangelo joined the Sixers in December 2015. So Brett had, you know, the 2015-16 season left on his contract. They gave him a two-year extension, uh, which took him through 2018-19. Yep, and uh, I would imagine that he will. You know, I mean, they, they got to keep performing. They can't have a disaster next year, but. If they continue this upward mobility and are a top four seed, I would imagine they'll take care of him. As you know, God, you see Embiid last night tweeting that he he found a way while insert insulting Colin Cowherd to uh, to also say that coach deserves a lot of credit. Um, and as for Redick, if they do sign LeBron, then they will be over the cap or right at it. So that that basically leaves what the the room mid level exception. Yep, which I think for this year was a little over five million. Would he take that? Maybe. I mean, you, you could also spin it. Say, hey, JJ, we just paid you twenty three million dollars. Uh, so basically, you're making you know fourteen and a half million dollars over the last two years. That's 
that that's right around the area he wanted uh, in free agency this season. So, and, and uh, you know, when he signed right away, he, uh, he both he and Colangelo made the point that yes, this is going to be for one year, but we see this as a longer term type of thing. Um, and, and I think basically what the Sixers almost assuredly did there was they told him, hey, we're going to go take a swing for the two two guys that the uh, the mailbag question mentioned. We're, we're going to go take swings at the star-level players, Paul George and LeBron. And if we don't get them, then we're going to resign you. Probably at a smaller number than you got this year, but you know when you weigh out the two years, it's a, it's a pretty good chunk of change. And, you know, God, if they sign LeBron, JJ's never won a ring. He clearly likes playing here. He likes playing for Brett. His wife I likes would... playing here. Does she? Yeah, she's we... she's she's based up in Brooklyn. She was they they wanted to be close to Brooklyn. Yeah, she wanted Brooklyn though. Yeah, yeah, she did. I but I, yeah, I, I guess this is the the next best option that was available. But yes, again, he he has that really nice apartment in Brooklyn, and he can commute between the two places. I, you know, I was talking with him after the Knicks game a few weeks ago, or uh, last week. I said, "You seem like it seems like you played pretty well up here." And he's like, "Yeah, man, I get to get to wake up with my kids. It's awesome." Uh, so again, you get the four games up there every year. Uh, yeah, so I, I think like, look, I, you know, we're, we're still a long ways away. Again, we have no idea what LeBron will do, but if I had to guess, Redick will be on the team in some form next year. That that would be my guess. I'm not saying that with any sort of certainty, but it's just the feeling I have right now. Yeah, and I I agree with you that if I had to guess, I think he'll be on the team next year, but I kind of think it's more of the we didn't get LeBron or Paul George in free agency want to keep that money open for 2019. Let's sign J.J. to another probably overpaid one-year deal and try again next summer. I think it's, it's probably along that that yep. front in terms of the the mid-level you know obviously in order to get cap space you have to renounce the mid-level exception so we're going to have to renounce the rights that you know 8.4 million dollars or it was 8.4 million dollars for this season uh, it'll go up a little bit for the cap next year um, but they have to renounce that so they can have cap room otherwise it's going to basically be a cap hold what they get in its place like we said is that room mid-level which i actually just looked at it for this year that was 4.3 million so again, a slight increase, but you're talking basically half of what that mid-level would be. That's going to make it hard to get a guy of J.J. Reddick's caliber on that, even though you did pay him $23 million. If he's looking at it, I don't think there's like an under-the-table, hey, we overpaid you this year, so you'll take your next contract cheaper. Because when you look at it, he's going to say, look, this team out here, they're offering me $8.4 million. Like That's a that's a, a pretty decent number to give up. Will he do that? I I don't know. It seems a little far-fetched to me. But like you said, if they do, you know, if basically they renounce it, they use that space, they do get a guy like LeBron or Paul George, and he wants to win a championship, and maybe they win around this year, and he says, man, we we add a guy like LeBron, we have a real chance. Might he come back then? Then, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's a chance. They have to first get that guy, and that's a key, getting a guy like LeBron or Paul George. That's, that's a big step to take still. Um, all right, so Sir William Wallace, thank you for the question. That's Braveheart, right? I think that was yep. Braveheart, yeah. Thank, thank you for freeing Scotland, too. All right. Um, all right. From Wonk Dan, at Wonk Dan. Uh, Given his improved play, should we think of Dario as being just as essential to the future as Fultz, Embiid, and Simmons? No. 
No. No. I mean, <laughs> look, I love how Dario has improved. I love his shooting. I love the way he plays. You know, he was diving in the stands up 34 in the third quarter against Memphis. I love that mentality. I worry about getting injured, but I love that mentality. He has, like, his creativity is great to watch. He's really found his role as a off-ball scorer. He's just a, unconscious from three. He'll There's no hesitation in his shot. Everything is working out. As you would ex- as best as you could hope for, like he really is close to. If you would have said, "How can Dario succeed as a third or fourth option off the ball?" He is made that transition better than I think any of us expected. It's great to watch. It makes some of these goofy ass lineups realistic. His success is still dependent, though, on Embiid and Simmons and Fultz. Like he, he if. Simmons goes down, you're not going to drop Dario into that lineup, into that role, carrying that kind of burden, and not see a huge drop-off. Like, he's not he's not going to be able to carry you. He's not going to be able to run your offense. He's not going to be the kind of defensive force that Ben Simmons is. He is a role player. And I don't mean that dismissively. Like, those roles are hugely important. They They, they very well might end up determining whether or not this team wins a championship or not. But they have to be able to play off of your star players, and your star players are still Embiid, Simmons, and hopefully Fultz. Yeah, I mean, he's going to make a, a shit ton of money for being a role player, and deservedly so, uh, once his contract runs up. Uh, yeah, he, those guys, Simmons and Embiid, and, and hopefully Fultz, we'll see if Fultz can get there, but Simmons and Embiid represent two-way studs. Dario, if you've noticed recently that the Sixers, that they switch all the time, Dario has been fantastic this season. But if you notice when, like, a, a water bug type of guard gets switched onto him. Another great Brett Brown term. Water which, bug, which, yep. By the way, check out Rich's column on The Athletic Philly, theathletic.com slash Philly, uh, where he goes over some of Brett Brown's terminology. Not necessarily NBA terminology. A lot of, of what Brett Brown says and, and how he kind of – how how Brett speaks the language, which was a, a great read. But go ahead. Um, thank you. And, yeah, he uh, – when a smaller guard gets switched on a Dario, he has gotten roasted a lot recently. And, look, I mean, the Sixers with Embiid, e- even when they're struggling recently, still an above-average defense, still really good. But, I mean, he, he – he is better as an off-ball player. That That's the one thing I don't really agree with. I've seen this on Twitter and different writers say, oh, Dario needs to be on a better team. It might have been Bill Simmons where he's like, we need to get him on a team where he has the ball all the time. And in terms of like just like watching basketball and just being a league pass junkie and, and an entertainment value, that might be true. Like Dario, his passing ability might get a little bit minimized on this team with Simmons. But in terms of like effective basketball, he's an off-ball player. He's a secondary scorer who can also make good reads in, in the half court. And he's not a great defender. He's he's smart enough, and he works his ass off, and I'm thrilled with his progress on that end. But, yeah, he's not on the same level as those guys. No, and that, that's not, like, that, that's not a, a slight towards Dario at all. Like, I mean, Joel Embiid is a top-10 player in the NBA. He has... Top one player potential. Ben Simmons, if he corrects, corrects his jump shot, he has top 10, maybe top five player in the NBA potential. Like the fact that Dario isn't in that tier 
I don't look at as a slight at all. The key is, and by the way, ranking players is kind of ridiculous, and I hate doing it, uh, especially when you start getting into that top 10 player range. Like Sometimes they'll always be the ninth best player in the NBA right now or the 12th best player. Well, who really cares? Like it doesn't. There's never a point where you're you know, playing pickup basketball and you have to choose which one of these guys you want. That's just not the way the NBA operates. But Dario is the, the key to this season, the key why this his development has been a success is that a play style he previously had. I remember us watching Efez for a couple of years and going, all they do is put him off the ball, put him in pick and rolls, ask him to shoot, and occasionally make a read when the defense closes out on him. Like, this is a guy with elite passing, elite creativity for his position. Uh, he can do a lot more than what they're asking them to do. But over years, he's kind of gotten used to that role. He's gotten to where he can succeed in that role. And that's key for him because, like you said, creating at a high level the way he did maybe at lower levels, especially when he was in Croatia, might not be in his cards as an NBA player going against NBA-level athletes in competition. But the fact that he is now a knockdown three-point shooter, I remember looking it up recently, with Embiid on the court since January 1st, he's shooting 49% from three with Embiid on the court. That's insane, and that's also really hugely important. The fact that he's shooting like that, spacing the floor for Simmons and Embiid, can now get those kind of closeouts because defenders have to respect that shot, open up driving lanes, open up passing lanes, everything's kind of working the way you would want it to. But what, you know, does that mean the fact that he's filling that role at a borderline elite level mean he's now as important as the guys who are putting him in that role? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Again, not a slight at all. Shout out to Dario. Great season. Incredible season. Uh, all right. From uh, the best people, MCK Frank on Twitter. Any parallels with the Sixers' recent defensive slide and the addition of Ursan and Marco? Well, I, I wish I did a little little prep for this one. Um, <laughs> my guess would my guess would be yes. I, I don't think it's completely their fault. I think, you know, for a couple of weeks there, Embiid looked sluggish, uh, just just flat out, and and that is the reason they're such an elite team. And if he takes a step back, then you're you're sort of in trouble there. But I mean, you know, when you watch uh, Bellinelli in particular, is not a good defensive player. No, he's awful. He he's got, I think uh, Brian Ward from the De- press fan used to call uh, Nocioni cement feet back back like a while ago. That's a hell Marco of a shout has, out, by the way. Hell of a shout he, out. He has cement feet on the defensive end of the floor, and and just looking at it now, since since Marco started playing, um, the Sixers defense. Uh, it's you know it's it, it's been worse. You know Simmons and Saric have worse defensive ratings that, than Bellinelli does. Uh, Ilyasova actually, I, I wrote about this the other day. The Sixers are defending well with Ilyasova on the floor. Yeah, yep. He and you know it's, it might be the charges or, or whatever. And he he hadn't he hadn't played that well, you know, over the weekend. But but I, I don't really think he is at fault. I, I think there could be something to to Bellinelli kind of uh, just creating more fires that they have to put out on the back line than the other players. But, you know, the, as frustrating as he's been, offensively they've played just as well with him too. So I, I don't really think the the recent slide, and, and trust me, like, it's been, it was frustrating for a few nights. Like, 
I was sick of that watching at, at MSG watching the Knicks just score at will for three quarters. That no, was pissing. I remember you tweeting out like, "Remember when the Sixers used to play defense?" Like frustration yeah. was there. It was there for sure. Yeah, I like it better when when they're a dominant defensive team that has to uh, has to scrape by with their offense. Like I, I think that's a, a more sustainable thing. But I, I don't really think Bellinelli has been like he he's definitely contributed to it. He's not the sole factor though. No, he's not. And the slide really hasn't been all that much. Like, I just checked the numbers. They have a 104.6 defensive rating when he's on the court uh, since February, since his acquisition. They have a 103.5 defensive rating overall. So, you know, you're talking there might be a point or two per 100 better when he's off the court. Uh, some of that may be attributed to the fact that he that Embiid plays. You know, he probably doesn't play a whole lot of minutes with Embiid. Well, no, he does play a lot of minutes with Embiid. But there's probably some overlap where he's playing with Amir. So you wonder whether or not some of those combinations are contributing to that too. Bellinelli is an objectively awful defender. Like, there's really no other way I can say that. The question <laughs> is, do the Sixers have enough in Embiid and Simmons and and Covington to overcome that? And how much of a problem is one objectively awful guard defender to yeah. your roster? And it probably I think becomes, the answer to that's yes. By the way, I can think. they overcome it? For this year, I mean, like, look, like, if, if you're trying to win a title, no. But in terms of, like, realistic ex- expectations for this year, can they win a playoff series with him playing 15 to 20 minutes per game of awful defense? Yeah, I think they have enough to overcome that. Yeah, and I think I think what I would like to see is 15 to 20 minutes from Bellinelli rather than the 26 or so he was playing to start. And I think maybe bringing Justin Anderson back into the rotation might – might help solve some of that, might give you a little more, you can be a little more prudent in who you're matching Bellinelli up with, both in terms of the other teams, you know, who, who's on the court for the other teams and also who's on the court for the Sixers. So, look, Bellinelli is going to drive me insane. Like the combination, of, he's not a good enough defender to take some of the bullshit shots he takes and he'll drive you insane. But he'll also God. then just have nights where he'll, he'll go off for 20 and really propel you to a win, or at least to, to helping you win. So... Considering the options the Sixers had, I like him better than Bayless. I like him better than a lot of the options that they had for giving up no draft picks and taking on no salary at the, at the deadline in the buyout market. So I I, I don't I'm not I'm certainly not going to rip them for signing him off the the waiver wire or off the buyout market. Um, but I also like is he going to frustrate me? Yeah, I'm probably going to send off a an angry tweet or two or a frustrated tweet or two. Because of his play, yeah, probably. But he was—he's also a fine addition, I think. Yeah, it. I mean, the difference between his good games and bad games—it's—it's it's stark. I mean, he's still taking the same bullshit shots. Just sometimes they go, they go in. in. Yep, yep, it really and, is. and that matters. So. This is one thing I found interesting looking up numbers recently is how much the league has trended upwards offensively throughout the season. Yeah, and I mean you're. Like we're talking about the Sixers, a 103.5 defensive rating. They're still sixth in the NBA over that span, uh, so they're still defending at a high level. It's just the league has the league's offense has improved. But then you look at it, and since February, since mid-February, the Jazz have a 93.1 defensive rating. The next closest team has a 102.2. That is insane. That's one of the most insane stats I've seen in a long time. And look, the Jazz are 13 and three over that span. They're winning because of their defense. Holy shit, Rudy Gobert is a monster. Holy shit. And, of course, we all knew that. But just now looking at it, because I wanted to see at the six, where the Sixers ranked since the acquisition of Bellinelli, holy shit, Utah. Whew. 
Rudy Gobert, I mean, what's he going to play? Like, I'm looking at his stats right now. 50 games or something? He's at 40. 45. So he'll upper 50. 45. 45 right now. I I would not. If he plays the rest of the year and they continue to defend at that level, I'm usually a big games played guy. If he got defensive player of the year, I would not be too stressed out about that. No, I mean, he's probably, him and Dre are probably the only two real contenders to Embiid. I think I think Gobert might end up getting it with 57 games played or whatever. Like The fact that, that Embiid might play an extra 13 or so games Gobert has a the credentials and b the reputation where I could I could certainly see him winning that award even with even with those, that few games played he is whew, I mean it, it it's truly it's, I remember during the height and people kind of get on me sometimes because I was a Noel guy and I still believe in Nerlens Noel's talent but there was a, a a debate in Liberty Ballers land going back a few years about Noel's defense or Gobert and I I was very firmly on the Gobert side and I'm very happy I was at least. I may have overrated Noel at times, but I didn't go that far. Which shows you how much this fan base believes in New Orleans Noel. It's too bad he wasn't there last night. A lot of hot dogs. <laughs> I forgot about that story. That's a, that's a good call. That's a good call. All right, we have one more question from uh, uh, named Fulslaw on Twitter. Would you take Bryce Johnson or Ben Simmons, and if so, how many times out of 100? So the best part about that is Wilbon, after he initially tweets that, he tweets that like during an NCAA tournament game where Bryce Johnson, 35-year-old senior, is is killing, and Ben Simmons hasn't played in the, uh, you know, his his bad team didn't make the field of 68. He tweets that, and I believe the end of the, the quote was, I would take Bryce Johnson over Ben Simmons in the MB, for my NBA team. So then, like, Two years later, that obviously, you know, the freezing cold takes guy and every Sixers, Sixers fan person. Out there. Yeah. yeah. Just throws it back in his face. Rightfully so, by the way. That was a r- ridiculous thing to tweet at the time. Um, two years later, obviously, Ben Simmons is killing it. And, and Wilbon says, No, I meant for my college team. <laughs> you said for my NBA team in the right. fucking tweet, dude. Unbelievable. Look. Projecting college players to the NBA is very difficult. I usually will not get on somebody for a – like, if I call somebody out on a bad take, I have to acknowledge the fact that, oh, by the way, I've had a lot of really fucking bad projections. Like, it's a really hard task to do. NBA GMs and scouts who get paid to do it and do nothing else with their lives struggle to do this effectively. So I don't like calling people out, really. But holy shit, that was a bad take. And holy shit to double down on it like you did and not acknowledge what was in your tweet. Really bad take. It was really obvious coming into that draft that, that Ben Simmons was a better player, a better prospect by a wide margin, and that was an insane take. Um, yes, I will take Ben Simmons over Bryce Johnson. Poor Bryce Johnson, too, getting uh, you know scrap-type minutes for the, uh, for the Grizzlies. And it's the first thing I think of is – is how ridiculous that Wilbon take is. No, normally I just say, oh, oh yeah, he's you know good for him. He's in the NBA. No, I have to say, I have to think. Oh my God! Remember when people thought, or uh, one person thought he was better than Ben Simmons and double down. <laughs> well, by the way, he played. He played ten minutes last night, and that was the second most he's played all season. Bryce Johnson. Not a, not adding more win shares than Ben Simmons. That's for sure. All right, I think that's probably a good spot. 
to cut it off unless you have anything else uh, before we leave. Subscribe to The Athletic. There you go. Do it. Uh, <laughs> we enjoy having jobs writing about basketball, so if you can subscribe, hopefully we can give you quality information and it can be a win-win. Um, that's it. We'll uh, try and do these a little more frequently over the next couple weeks here. Yeah, we, we took a, a, a week or two off. Uh, we will not be doing that as the playoff race gears up, but thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man. You've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co.